can only be readily available when organizations like yours would marshal the resources to build the Nate Thurman facility or to build the baseball field at Crocker Amazon or to build some of the other things that you did. And you did not need to be burdened with the erected barrier to try to stop you. Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. It is my pleasure to be sitting here in the penthouse of a historic San Francisco waterfront building with longtime Good Tidings Foundation partner, the Honorable Willie L. Brown, Jr. So, Willie, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. All right, thank you very much, and it's nice to see you again. As I said earlier, I last saw you when Good Tidings was doing the good thing that you always do, yeah, and that is showing up on behalf of kids, and that was in Richmond, California, for the dedication of the Willie Mays Baseball Files in Richmond, of all places, <laughs> and it was a good day. It was a great day. Yeah. So we first met 23 years ago when you were in the middle of your eight-year run as mayor of San Francisco at the dedication ceremony of our Nate Thurman Court on the Panhandle at Golden Gate Park. And in your speech that day, you threw out a little tidbit not many people know, is that you were Nate Thurman's first agent. So tell us about how <laughs> representing him came about, and how did the negotiations go? Well, I got to tell you that uh, Nate was such a, a a great human being outside of being an incredible basketball player. The team was owned by a guy named Frank Muley at the time. Frank Muley was a character in San Francisco, the kind of hat pieces that he adorned and the kind of things he really wanted to do. And he had convinced the people who owned, at that time, the Warriors, the Philadelphia Warriors, to sell the Warriors to him. <laughs> and he had convinced friends of his and acquaintances to buy this basketball team. Nobody, I don't think, in those days understood the ultimate value that a basketball team could be. Yeah. But the Warriors had one thing. They had Wilt Chamberlain, and everybody wanted Wilt Chamberlain for their basketball player. We didn't have the kind of television coverage we have today in the NBA. But Franklin Muley was a dreamer and a, a schemer, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> he got the team and brought it out here. We had no arena for them to play in, comparable to what you have in college basketball even, yeah. because we played uh, – the Warriors played out first at Civic Auditorium, and then they played at the Cow Palace, and that became <laughs> uh, their deal. Yeah. And Muley weathered the storm at each step. Salaries were not very high in those days. And lo and behold, when he drafted this young man out of uh, Akron, Ohio, on Nate Thurman, 6'11 or so, and probably the best athlete 
on the team because he could do it all. He could play defense. He could play offense. He could rebound. As a matter of fact, Nate Thurman in this day and age would have been a point guard if he had chosen to do so, somewhat akin to what ultimately happened with uh, people like Larry Bird and people like Magic Johnson. But Nate was unique because Nate really loved to play basketball, but he loved more than anything else interacting with people. And so when the law office of Brown, Dearman, and Smith, and that was the name of my law firm at that time, and I had just been elected to the legislature not too many years before, we got Nate Thurman because a woman he was trying to rent a unit from said, you need a lawyer. You need somebody to represent you. Uh, You're not making enough money. So Nate came to our law firm, and we were probably the only law firm in the country that would represent a player or an athlete or an entertainer and only charge them by the hour. We did not charge them a percentage of what they were being rewarded or being given or being offered. And, of course, in the process, uh, we got to know Muley really well. In other words, Muley got to know us really well because Muley needed all of the help he could get. The guy really did not have a whole lot of money to be doing what owners normally do. And so it was fun working with Franklin Muley. It was an easy fit, as a matter of fact. And Nate Thurman was so direct and so uh, unwilling to rip off people, so to speak. He really wanted to play basketball. He really wanted to be a person in this community. And to that end, our law firm represented him. And by the way, I think we ultimately may have gotten the first $1 million contract Muley ever signed for anybody. Because as things unfolded, on one of the next opportunities to negotiate was when the competitive league rose its ugly head and started trying to rip off the best players. And they really wanted Nate Thurman and Rick Barry as a group, so to speak. People out of San Diego, actually, they were out of Stockton, but they owned franchise in San Diego in football, and they wanted to have a basketball franchise. And they were the ones, frankly, that caused Muley to have to give Nate Thurman a million bucks because he didn't want to lose Nate Thurman. They offered Nate Thurman and Barry a huge deal. A deal where you'd own real estate, you'd be, you'd build houses and all those kinds of things. And our conversation with Nat, well, with Nate Thurman was a very easy one. See, you know, you don't want to live up in Stockton. Are you kidding me? Uh, and, and we explained to Muley what it meant because competitors were now sniffing around trying to get representation of these guys. And Nate Thurman says, I'm going to do what Mr. Brown says. And what Mr. Brown said to Nate Thurman was, you tell me what you want. And Nate Thurman said, well, you know, I always wanted to have a real Rolls Royce. So we got him a silver cloud. And he still had that silver cloud 20 years later. He still had it. And then he said, I, I also wanted to uh, live in a, in, a, in a high rise. I want a penthouse if I can get one. We got 999 Green Street. Is part of the deal, and and then he says, "I, you know, I'd like to be reasonably well dressed like you are, Willie Brown. So 
we got him a wardrobe. <laughs> All his clothes had to be made, of course. Sure. And we got him a wardrobe, and we got him 7500 bucks a month. Plus, when he'd reach 44 45, he would be making at least $100,000 a year for the rest of his life. That was the contract we signed to keep him from going with the other league. Yeah. Rick Berry went with the other league for a period of time. But by the time Rick realized it wasn't a great idea to be over there, it was really too late for his skill set. If Barry and, 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 and uh, Thurman had been on the same team early on as we tried to put them on the same team early on with Franklin Muley, Barry's career would have been different. I don't think Nate Thurman's career would have been any different. Nate Thurman was such a great basketball player, such a team player, uh, that his career sparkled all the way through, and he eventually went into the food business when he stopped the barbecue business, when he stopped playing basketball. Nate was a friend until his death. Yeah. Yeah, he really was, and and that sparked that day sparked a great friendship because he became the official spokesperson of the Good Tidings Foundation. I had the pleasure of eulogizing him. You were there that day, but I thought dedication. You're right. He drove up in that silver cloud that day, so he still had it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was it was kind of amazing because he said what he really wanted, and he never second guessed us at all. And uh, my partner was a guy who ultimately became a judge, John Deerman. And he and Nate were even closer, ultimately, than Nate and I were because on the occasions of my having to be up in Sacramento and Nate wanted to talk to somebody, he had to talk to Dearman. And he found Dearman a lot easier to talk to than me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So back at that time, were there many black attorneys in the city of San Francisco? No, no, yeah. there were not. There was probably half a dozen black lawyers in San Francisco, and we primarily practiced uh, three parts of the legal world. We clearly practiced criminal defense because almost in every neighborhood there are people who are accused of crimes or commit crimes or need representation. I kind of handle that piece of our operation. There was also several black doctors, and invariably when people got injured, we still were a town that didn't reach out, medically speaking, to people of color, particularly blacks and Chinese. And therefore, the black doctors in San Francisco could do reasonably well. There was no competition from Kaiser. There was no competition from any of the current kind of clinic and health groups uh, that you have. So private practice where you had a family doctor was a big deal. Invariably, however, when people get in automobile accidents or get hurt, they tell their doctor and their doctor would say, call the office of Brown, Dearman, and Smith. And Dearman, the guy that became the judge, was the specialist in the personal injury side of our business. And then we had, of course, uh, divorces small business practices and things of that nature. And uh, we had uh, maybe two lawyers in downtown San Francisco, black. We had the rest were either in the Fillmore or out in the Third Street area of our city. My law office was at 2085 Sutter. 
Terry Francois's office was 285 Sutter. Garfield Stewart's office was right down the street on Sutter. We were all clustered. Oh, interesting. And then there was only one guy not in the complex area, a guy named Blackburn, and he was up on Fillmore and Fulton. So we were all. That's when there was a black community of San Francisco, period. Interesting. So I do want to just briefly go back, all the way back to the mid-40s. You were growing up in East Texas. Tell us a little briefly about the experience there and your motivation also then that might have motivated you to come out to San Francisco. (laughs) I was born in a little town called Mineola. That's about 80 miles southeast of Dallas, halfway between Dallas and New Orleans on Highway 80. And it was a prejudiced, segregated little town. They didn't go, they didn't have a high school that went 12 grades until about 1947 or 48. I was born in 34. So I was looking, as my sisters had looked, at the prospect of having to go to some other town once you get to the 10th grade, go to some other town to graduate from high school. And I was, of course, determined uh, that I was going to graduate from college, not just high school. My sisters were the same way. My mother and my grandmother was driving us in those directions. Finally, in 47, 48, the white school board decided to add the two grades to the black school, Mineola Colored High. And my That was the name, Mineola Colored High. Yeah, Mineola Colored High. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it was a different world, my friend. And uh, my my family, though, my, my grandparents, my, my grandmother primarily raised me. My mother had to work to support the family because my father was virtually non-existent. Uh, so my mother lived in a servant's quarters over a garage in Dallas, Texas, in the Highland Park area of Dallas, working for family. She'd come home, however, every weekend. She worked like four or five days a week, and she'd be home three. And so her mother, Anna Lee Collins, took care of her children, the children, Minnie's children. Minnie was my mother. But Anna Lee Collins was also in the nightclub business, if you could call it that. We called it a honky-tonk. <laughs> and it was a, a joint up the street from where we lived uh, on Gerard. And she and her sons ran this place. You understand this is a dry county. They didn't have any booze in this county. But bootlegging was part of what people actually did. And my grandmother apparently had an arrangement with the higher sheriff that kind of ran the county and, <laughs> because the bootleg booze was stored in her basement where we lived. Uh, and that bootleg booze was distributed per she and apparently the sheriff's, the high sheriff's operation. It also was a place where goods that were you couldn't get during the Second World War, like sugar and, and washing powder and things of that nature, they were all uh, limited and distributed on the basis of stamps and things of that nature. My grandmother was running that kind of <laughs> operation. So and I'm sure her partner was, in fact, the guy that came over with uniform at least once a week. 
allegedly to sell low. Right. <laughs> I think she may have even had an affair with him. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All sorts of stuff going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was interesting because my grandmother was a very smart person, and she was the one person that literally made it clear that white folk were no better and no smarter than she was. And she would curse them out, argue with the guy at the corner who had the only store around, and he'd keep the books. You couldn't exactly pay. <laughs> he'd keep the books on you. And she was sure he was marking those books up for his own benefit, and she'd get in arguments with him. I was always her carrier. I was like uh, the the... The, uh, I suppose you'd call me now the Amazon delivery boy <laughs> <laughs> for my grandmother. But she had an arrangement that I didn't fully understand. You know, you understand that I'm reflecting on the time that I was there. And after when I left, I realized, wait a minute, my grandmother had something going because she never, ever got aroused or arrested or raided by the high sheriff. Everybody else in the town did, white and black. But my grandmother and the high sheriff clearly had something going. Uh, And uh, she was uh, fabulous because she absolutely directed her children and her grandchildren to do better than anyone before you, period. And that was how she forced us for school purposes. We couldn't come home if we didn't bring A's on our cards because you got a weapon if you didn't come home. Yeah. You had to be obedient. You had to be respectful. You had to go to church every Sunday. You went to Sunday school. You sing in the choir if you had a voice. And if you didn't have a voice, you became an usher. I was a permanent usher. Only member of the family that never made the choir. I couldn't <laughs> sing a lick. <laughs> That's funny. And then was that experience a motivation to come west to San Francisco? Well, the two of my uncles, my mother's brothers, accepted what the federal government of the U.S. had insisted black people do. You couldn't become a soldier unless it was kind of extraordinary. In the Second World War, you, however, could come to work at the shipyard, work at Naval Islands. And so in Mineola, people were recruited to come to San Francisco to work at the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard. So two of my uncles came here to work at the Naval Shipyard, uh, at the Hunters Point Shipyard. One uncle got hired the first day they got here. They one uncle, the uncle, the big uncle, got hired as a janitor. You couldn't understand him. He stuttered so badly that nobody could understand him. We'd interpret what he said, but he had a stutterer and obviously no kind of attention ever given to that uh, for any medical purposes because there were no doctors and for black people. My other uncle, his younger brother and smaller brother, was interviewed, and they told him to come back in a couple of days uh, or whatever, and he, on the way out of the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, there was a bar, and he noticed that people had been paid that day because in those days you didn't get a check. You got paid cash by an armored truck that drove up and oh, paid you. <laughs> and he saw that they had been paid, and he saw they immediately went into the bar. 
So he went into the bar to see what they were doing in there. And lo and behold, they had a gambling game going on. And he had always really been good at numbers and things of that nature. And he went over to the gambling game, and with the last 50 bucks or so that he had, he got in the game. And he realized that they were not very good gamblers. <laughs> and so he never went back for the second interview. Oh, my he goodness. He only went back on payday. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> At that joint in the Hunter's Point. And he was determined to go back home as often as he possibly could and always driving a new Buick. Oh, man, he loved Buicks, not Cadillacs, Buick. <laughs> He and his brothers. So he would drive back to Mineola, and, and he would insist that the kids, his nieces and nephews, yeah. should not be allowed to stay in that town, that we really ought to go some other place. So when I graduated from high school, and uh, he uh, got kicked out of college, I got a scholarship to a black college in Hempstead, Texas. And, and, and my uncle just insisted to my mother that's the wrong place for him to be. He'll only be a, end up being a teacher or undertaker. He'll never be what he could be. And I don't know what he could be, but those things are not to be what he is. And lo and behold, when I got down there, you know, within a month, my mouth got me into trouble with the school. And they sent me home. And my mother did not want to be embarrassed. There's no way that you are the kid of hers going to get kicked out of college. So she turned me over to my uncle in California and told my father that's where I was going and lo and behold put me on a train filled a box with fried chicken so that I could eat on my way to California if I got hungry and lo and behold I ended up here landed in Oakland that's where the train stopped my uncle picked me up brought me over to San Francisco took me had a room for me at his house on Oak Street 1028 Oak and said, uh, you know, you got to learn this on your own. Now you're here, you're a, smart, you're a smart kid. So every day, take whatever you need money-wise off the table, and I want you to go in a different direction, walking only in San Francisco. And I don't want to see you till nighttime. And if I don't see you at nighttime, you obviously know how to get back home. And that was my challenge. Wow. So that's how I learned yeah. San Francisco. I had, you know, I had, I had never seen an Asian. Yeah. <laughs> I'd seen a Mexican, but I'd never seen an Asian or Latino, as we now call it. Yeah. And I walked in a different direction every day. Every day, I'd go two blocks, three blocks, five blocks, and then and wander all over. And of course, it was the first time I've really ever seen a body of water similar to what the bay was, or the ocean, when I'd go out to Ocean Beach. And uh, it was fun learning about the city. And within a short period of time, I knew more about the, the geography of the city uh, than my uncle did, because he had not uh, ventured further away from the Fillmore, Ahana's Point. Those were his two. Dago Marius was where he gambled, and, and he, opened a, uh, he opened a joint on his own. In the Fillmore. So interesting. And he called it the uh, Unemployed Janitors Association. <laughs> because he said if his brother was a janitor, that's all he, he would ever indicate that he was. Yeah. And that's what he did. How interesting. It's a question. 
who was your idol growing up and who was the most inspirational person you ended up meeting after you became an adult and professional? Well, I have to tell you that growing up, it was my uncle, Uncle Itzy. His name was Itzy Collins. I had the honor of burying Itzy once I became mayor. By then, I had already buried my mother, but I buried him right here. Did not take him back home because he didn't ever want to go back home. Yeah, right. He was determined. He was a Californian. He really, every day, whenever he would take just a minute or two to talk to me, he'd ask me what I did that day, where did I go, what did I see, and did I meet anybody? He was really focused on making sure you knew. I thought I had to know everybody I've said hello to because of his deal, the way he, the kind of things that he was doing literally relied upon his being the most well-known person working the Fillmore. And so it was easy for me to understand what that really meant. And in reality, years later, when I'm a candidate for public office, I was talking to people I used to walk the streets with, yeah. which made it really as if I was just as they were, yeah. in which I really was. And it was my uncle that was the greatest inspiration for me. As life unfolded politically, the greatest inspiration was a guy named Phil Burton, who was a congressman ultimately, and he probably would have been the first speaker. Currently, the seat that he held before he died at a very young age, he died like in his, he was 56 or 7 when he died. So he's a young man and a lawyer. And his brother was named John Burton, whom I got elected with and went to college with and went to law school with. But Phil Burton was the genius of the world of politics that framed the world of politics in San Francisco that led to incredible successes. George Moscone being elected the mayor of San Francisco, his own brother, John, being elected to the state legislature and becoming president pro tem of the state senate. His widow became the his replacement on his death. Sally Burton was her name. He had a dedicated brother named Bob Burton that became kind of the architect of high school in prison uh, for people who were in prison. He really thought that they ought to be educated to make the transition outside. That was Bob Burton. So the Burton family was incredible. The head of the family was a doctor. <laughs> and the, the father of the family of the Burtons was a doctor. Phil Burton first ran for office. He graduated from USC, first ran for office. In that particular race, his opponent died at the end of September, too late for a new person to be named as his opponent. But the dead man beat Phil Burton. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we never let Phil forget that. But Phil literally created the process by which diversity reflected itself at every level of politics in San Francisco and then ultimately in the state of California. 
He made sure women, Asians, blacks, Latinos, he was very focused on, before anybody ever talked about diversity and things of that nature, Phil thought it was smart to make sure that every unit that represented votes got representation on the result of these votes. And all aspects of the public policy issues, whether it was taking care of elderly people, whether it was providing resources for people who were on welfare, or whether it was providing transition from prison back to the streets, Phil's agenda was laced uh, with all the kinds of things that everybody crow about these days. So when I said that he was my inspiration, he was an inspiration to a lot of people, but he was literally the foundation of my success politically. Interesting. Yeah, and I know once you became mayor, you made sure the underrepresented in um, the community were part of your staff. No question. Not only my staff, the mayor has a great appointment power. Board of, the board of Supervisors, if a vacancy occurs, district attorney, if the vacancy occurs, the mayor appoints all of those. The mayor appoints about 350 commissioners or persons to plan in land use, all those kinds of things. So it was not difficult to remember what Phil had taught all of us, and that was the broader the representation, the more potential it is for democracy to really work. Yeah. And what was your motivation from leaving the, your law practice and enter into political life? I never left the law practice. The law practice became the basis on which I could do politics because you don't make any money in politics. Money is not what you can expect to receive when you're there. And I'll give you an example. I have, have 40 years. My retirement is $9,000 a month. 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. $9,000 a month. The highest salary I ever got in politics when I was mayor, $160,000 a year. <laughs> yeah. And in San Francisco, that is, you not, know, not much. Near the poverty <laughs> level, so to speak. Yeah. And so in the world of politics, you really do have to know that you are not going to, if you want to make money, you want to be a rich person, the last place you want to be is in the world of politics because you're not. The compensations are adequate for you to live, period. In my days, however, we didn't have all the rules about what you could receive or not receive. For an example, if your organization uh, wanted to invite me as the mayor to a basketball game, with tickets in your box, that was perfectly all right. That's the way in which it was done. In this day and age, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> you cannot do that anymore. If your organization uh, wanted to send a Christmas gift, you'd first have to determine how much it is and does it meet the requirements of, of limits. And it's all because the public became convinced based on 
many of what we politicians did and what we said when we were after the job that another politician may have, that we are being influenced by gifts. We're being influenced by dinners. We're being influenced by invitations to sporting events. Last night, for an example, I went to see my friend Chris Rock's performance at the Masonic. Uh, Chris invited me. I could not have accepted Chris's invitation because those tickets were about 150 bucks a ticket or something. <laughs> because, and if I'd been holding office, but in my day, it, and, and, and the reason I'm dwelling on it is because clearly there is now a dramatic difference in who can run and what they can do when they're there. And that makes it even more difficult for quality people. You don't have very many people going to college to run for public office, ultimately. And it's too bad because the quality of the representation suffers as a result of zero attraction for the A students. Yeah. And in, in your opinion, it seems like politics is much more of an art form than it is a science. You know, the way you, the way you were so charismatic and so much part of the people as a mayor, as the city's mayor, it seems like it was an art form for you. Well, it is an art form. As a matter of fact, politics is laced with entertainment. You really do have <laughs> to be about making sure uh, that uh, in your efforts to generate uh, support for the policies you have, you really have to engage in marketing. You really have to engage in making sure people understand how much more joyful life would be if what you were advocating uh, was ultimately available to everybody. And uh, that makes it far less precise. An engineer has no business thinking that that engineering skill can produce a political <laughs> result. Right. Because he has to recalibrate <laughs> almost overnight. And the same goes for people, uh, frankly, in the medical world. You can really understand medical science and treat people and all that. But if you're going to get elected, you've really got to do something more than what you've been trained to do. Yeah. And that's why it's more of an art form because it does it really doesn't have any real uh, parameters. Uh, anybody could ultimately do it if they were willing to market themselves and what they're uh, advocating and get the vote of the people that comes once or twice every two years. Yeah, what uh, what I was just so m the most impressed about with you is your willingness to create an easy path for us, the Good Tidings Foundation, to create all these facilities we did. We did almost 12 of them during your time as mayor. We obviously brought in our partners, the Warriors and the Giants and Leroy Neiman. But for me, giving and helping has nothing to do with politics or party affiliation. You just wanted to see this stuff done. And and it's not and people should know it's not easy to give something to a city. The politics of it and the red tape, and you just completely opened the door for us. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I must tell you that I would hope that every successor of mine in the world of politics at every level of which I was blessed with being able to achieve, I would hope they'd understand that 
they really do need to make sure the system is not uh, employed in such a way that it bars participation for goodness purposes, period. And all of the kinds of things that are imposed upon someone in pursuit of a dollar, rules and regulations, those things have no application to someone who's really trying to make sure that my grandkids get an opportunity uh, for a component of life that's not readily available if they can't afford it. And they can only be readily available when organizations of yours, like yours, would marshal the resources to build the Nate Thurman facility or to build the baseball field at Crocker Amazon or to build some of the other things that you did. And you did not need to be burdened with the erected barrier to try to stop you. You should be assisted <laughs> Amen. in trying to get you there. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was so noticeable, and you really set an example for other, like you said, politicians that followed you. And when you were elected, obviously there was a passion to resurrect these poor communities. That was a high priority for you. Well, and it was because my first arrival in San Francisco and all the walks I was telling you about, it was very clear that when I would wander through the parks in Pacific Heights and then the next day wander through the parks in the Mission, it was dramatic. I mean, in some places, the difference was similar to what I experienced when I lived in Mineola. It was a dramatic difference between the black side of town and the white side of town, and in every way, period. And it, in part, was because on the white side of town, the philanthropic donations and things of their nature clearly evidenced themselves, including people investing where their kids could enjoy themselves. And they're getting a tax credit for that purpose. There are people on the Fillmore side of town that did not have anybody in that category, period. And we're not going to have anybody in that category. No philanthropic, uh, you know, they you paid the church dues and things of that nature, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> as far as far as you could go. So your organization was totally and completely necessary to convince Pacific Heights that Pacific Heights, i.e. the warriors of the giants and the, the Niners and the other organizations need to embrace the Fillmore just as they had embraced Pacific Heights. And you did that. Yeah, well, it's been, it was a great run. And I just, a uh, few more questions I wanted to run, just personal questions. So where did this sense of style come from this amazing you walk into a room and you are dressed perfectly was was that something you dreamed of as a kid or was a you know when you were younger you had to dress right and go to church and wear your right clothes well there is no question every black child in the south walked the same road i did i suspect and that is school work church. And in each of those roles, your attire was a part of how you 
would conduct yourself and how you needed to have you on display. Sears Roebuck catalog was a <laughs> anchor tenant, not right next to the Bible, but in the same reach. Because <laughs> the Bible was an anchor, was yeah. the lead. And so Sears Roebuck did the wonderful job of displaying in its catalog all these wonderful things that you could wear and the price of them. You know, they were before Target and before Ross and before Marshalls and before any of those companies. And lo and behold, tell you a story, I uh, saw a pair of beautiful ankle boots with the gold chain on them. Oh, boy. That I really, really wanted. <laughs> and uh, you could order these things. And and I uh, ordered them. You could arrange layaway through the local store if you chose to for that purpose. And by the time I finally paid for those uh, boots, I had outgrown them. Oh, <laughs> Just one example yeah. of style. Yeah. But I didn't let that interfere. No. I wore them anyway. <laughs> Probably ruined my feet, but I wore them anyway. But that was all part of the growing up process and the acquiring process. Now, when I got to San Francisco, however, that's when it really hit me of how well-dressed you could be because my uncle was really at all times well-dressed. And he looked at what I had, which in his mind was nothing. <laughs> so the first thing he did literally was take me to a store called Howard Clothing Store. And it was on Fifth and Mission, mm -hmm. right there where they now call it Magnum mm -hmm. Place or whatever it is. And it was the only store that had a black salesman in downtown San Francisco. Mel Wilson was the uh, salesman. Oh. And my Uncle took me in there, bought me a blue serge suit, a light blue shirt, and a yellow tie, and a pair of shoes. And I was to wear those if I was going to church, if I was going to a wedding, if I was going to a funeral, if I was going to a graduation, <laughs> any of those things. That's what my blue serge suit was for. Well, I quickly assess that the part of what I mentioned a moment ago about one of the factors, work. If I worked, I earned enough money to add to the blue surge suit. Yeah. And I did. Oh <laughs> That's what I did with my money. Because I didn't, yeah, living with him and his brother, I didn't have to pay any rent or anything. And they didn't have a car. And, and I wasn't going, you know, I wasn't going to Kakari's or to uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mastro's Steakhouse or yeah. any of those places. Uh, I was in the Fillmore. <laughs> and it was all affordable. And the movies that I went through was at the Temple Theater. And they were the movies that had already exhausted that display in other places because you could go there uh, for 25 cents. So uh, life allowed me to, um, based on what I earned, to start uh, 
adding to the wardrobe. Yeah. Beyond the blue serge suit. That's great. And my uncle dressed impeccable. He was an impeccable dresser. He matched everything. Hat, shoes, everything. Period. And he kept them incredibly clean. And, and uh, the shirts were always uh, well ironed and well starched. And he had cufflinks. Ah, God, he had it all. <laughs> and uh, I uh, must tell you that I tried my best to match it. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting other impressive parts of your persona, and I've seen this numerous times, you can hop out of a car, walk into a room, go right to a podium, no notes, knock out a 10-minute speech, tie everyone in the room together by name, and walk out of the room. So where did this gift, it has to be a gift, of public speaking come from or develop from? Well, the skill set, I told you I couldn't sing. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I never made the choir. Never made the choir. And I resent it till this day, by the way, because I really wanted to be a singer. My sisters could play the piano, the, you know. My sisters could sing, and one of them became the songbird of Texas. And they all had some natural talent. I was the only one without natural talent. And so from, oh, I don't know, I must have been five, six, or seven years of age, if there was any kind of a play, you'd have an Easter performance, you'd have, you know, you'd have a Fourth of July performance and whatever. I would always do my best to get selected as one of the presenters, so to speak. And in order to make sure that uh, I was uh, always selected, I eliminated the need for anybody assisting me, period. If you got me and I got the story right, I could pull it off. And so I did that. I also was an avid reader. I mean, like an avid reader. I would read anything period. And there were always words that I may not have been familiar with. And if they were, I'd go to the dictionary. And then my grandmother was uh, uh, so focused that she made sure that uh, uh, I got access to encyclopedia materials very easily. So all of my life, I have been urged and pushed toward gathering information. And if you are that way, uh, you really can do wonders, frankly, in your delivery. You don't really need anybody to write it for you. You don't need anybody to do anything except get out of your way. If you are fully informed and you want to tell the story, it's no different than this broadcast. I don't need any notes to, <laughs> to yeah. be interviewed. No, no. <laughs> And therefore, I don't, and, and, and incidentally, in public speaking, I select one or two people in an audience of 500 that I'm talking to. And I'm only talking to those one or two people. Now, there are a whole lot of people listening. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking to the two people. Yeah. Unless I'm in a crowd of 25,000, and I, then I know that I'm no different from what I saw last night when I went to see uh, Chris Rock. <laughs> yeah. I went to see Chris Rock last night. 
It's no different, literally, because I stand there and I'm frankly entertaining myself yeah. <laughs> when I speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. So a couple more things. You are 88 years young, and we are sitting here in your office where you come to work at the Institute here for Public Service. Tell us what some of the stuff you're working on. Well, when I became the mayor of San Francisco, I had been blessed with staff of assistance, specialists in almost every category of subject matter, while I served as speaker. In my confrontations with the governors, whether it was Governor First Persian, Governor Brown. First Brown, yep. Second Brown, <laughs> and then Reagan, and then after Reagan, Duke Majin, then after Duke Majin, Wilson. Oh, I had dealt with a lot of folk, and it was necessary, frankly, to be able to uh, marshal all of the information that ultimately will be needed for quality decision-making. And that's what I made as my foundation. That's great. Well, I just, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for your friendship. I want to thank you for actually donating your ties and hats to our auctions over the years. <laughs> thank you. And, and really thank you for providing a young charity instant credibility. We had just started out and now we're in our 28th year and you provided that and that was a launch pad for us. And so thank you for all of this and thank you again for joining me today on the Good Tidings Podcast. I'm delighted and please continue to invite me when you are doing something or if I find out you're doing something, I'm going to intrude. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings Podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.